This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hi, this is Sandra McCracken, and you're listening to the Steadfast Podcast. Dr. Kurt Thompson is a therapist, speaker, and the author of The Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame. His work has been a great encouragement to me, even and especially while exploring this idea of patience. Kurt is a psychiatrist, and his work in recent years has helped others to develop authentic relationships through interpersonal neurobiology and the Christian worldview. Kurt comes to the table with scientific research and knowledge of how God designed our brains to function, and his perspective on patience is based in science, but it has the inflection of a pastor. Thanks for joining us. Here's Dr. Kurt Thompson. Thank you so much, Kurt, for making the time and just so encouraged by your work and have actually been reading your book, The Soul of Shame. Again, I picked it up again in this last few months, and it's just been such a comfort. I think one of the things that I'll just start by saying that that I appreciate so much about your work is that there's a palpable sense of hope, that there mm-hmm. are ways mm-hmm. we can grow and to mm-hmm. find, you know, I think of like if you're climbing up the side of a wall or whatever, it's like finding those little hooks where you can put your fingers in your hands and (laughs) if you're going to scale up to the top, you know, you've got to have something to like latch onto. And I feel like your work does that, Mm. Um, Mm. helps to find places to plant our feet and Mm. to Mm. move upward, you know? Mm. So thank you. And um, I would love to start by for people who are hearing this conversation that maybe don't know some of the background. So I, you have a, a center for being known a, you're the founder of this organization, which immediately draws me in because I feel like we can rally around this place. And then two books, the soul of shame and the anatomy of the soul. What, where, how did you come to this intersection of science and theology in your work? Like, where did that begin? Were there people in your life or mm. training or particular things that you were paying attention to that, mm. that led you down this path? Mm. Oh man, that's a, you know, it's, I, 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 I love to be asked this question because, and thank so thank you for asking it. And by mm. the way, it's like I mm. said, so your <laughs> listeners can hear this. Like, I can't believe my good fortune to be having this conversation <laughs> with you. I'm so thrilled to be talking to Santa McCracken. I'm just You're very it's just, kind. It's just, um, it's just too, this is just like a highlight of my day, my week, my <laughs> month, my, my life. It's just great. Um, you know, I, 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 there, there's nothing, there's nothing that I have done that ultimately I can't point back to a certain people or a certain experience with other people hmm. and the, the gifts that have been given to me. And hmm. I think, uh, you know, there was uh, a, a, a deep interest in science from the time I was a kid and a deep interest in inquiry, mm-hmm. the curiosity. And I had, I had really great teachers. Mm-hmm. And I, I was a guy who grew up in a community of faith that from the very get-go was willing to be curious about that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I grew up in an evangelical Quaker community. And so I got oh, lots wow. of Lots of lots of the best of all of those worlds of, mm-hmm. 
you know, the fundamentals of orthodoxy and the gospel. And, and at the same time, people who were committed to peacemaking and people who were committed to justice. And at the time, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in a, in a small town where Quakers had been instrumental in, you know, uh, we were like a half dozen underground railroad posts in our town. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hearing about these things from an early age. And then, you know, through college, I think, uh, you know, what became clear was I'm, I was, I was really interested in science, like interested, curious about it, but not very, not, not super passionate about it. What I was most passionate about was like, why do we do what we do the way we do it? Like, we <laughs> like, why don't like, and mostly I suppose that was, that was a reflection of my own, you know, my, my own uh, kind of existential crises that all began when I was a young teenager. I mean, I met Jesus, I think powerfully for the first time, probably when I was about 13 and almost immediately within a few months, I was, you know, spiraling into this kind of like series of questions about, is it real? Is it true? Can I trust the gospel Mm -hmm. that was tormenting for me and probably, and was a process that waxed and waned for probably, oh, I don't know, almost close to 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, heading off to medical school, uh, I I never, I I tell people, I don't think I found psychiatry. I think psychiatry found me. And Mm -hmm. I think God has been in the business of finding me from the time I was born, and he just finds me in new ways every mm-hmm. so often. And so I, I, I had no thoughts or plans to, about psychiatry when I entered medical school, but then, you know, when I had my first encounter with it in clinics, was just smitten by this, you know, there, here's this point where science, the questions of science, the questions of you know, what it means to be human really converged. And so I uh, entered into psychiatry and then about 15 years ago, 15, 16 years ago, um, had my, well, this is before Dan Siegel was very well known and mm-hmm. had my encounter with it, just a, um, a, a chance workshop that I wandered into uh, at a conference that where he was teaching and from there became uh, a, you know, a, a colleague and friend of his and this whole notion of thinking about the world through this uh, kind of combined lens of how does neuroscience and the brain and relationships you know work with each other we we call mm-hmm. it interpersonal neurobiology it's a you know it's a term that tries to capture this sense of it, it, it that life in its fullest and this is not even coming from the gospel but life in its mm-hmm. fullest is both interpersonal of course it's relational but those relationships are always involving the brain. They're always involving the mind. And what is the mind? So these kinds of questions were now, I think, really refreshingly being asked by mm-hmm. and others who were doing this work. But against the backdrop of the gospel, against the mm-hmm. backdrop of biblical anthropology, a biblical world, a biblical story, that we are loved by God, we are made by God in his image, that we are made deeply to be known. Hmm. And this, this of course, shows itself in work, in attachment work that hmm. we see, how we are known, and that there's nothing that I want any more in my world than to be seen by you hmm. and, and be loved by you. That's what I want. That's what I hunger for from the moment right. I come out of my mother's womb, that's what I'm looking, I'm looking for someone looking for me. Mm-hmm. But then we extend that and say like, this is God's mission to, for us to be in this world. And the mechanics of how this all works, I think is how, where the neuroscience is really helpful for us because in understanding the mechanics, we can then apply some of these things that we know, that we know about the gospel, about the story. Like I love mm-hmm. the Bible. But if the bicycle's broken, how do I fix it? Well, learning some things about how a how bicycle works helps me then 
get the bicycle back on the road and helps us understand some of how God is doing some of this masterful work. And then, you know, the work of the first book was really around this question of this intersection of neuroscience and spiritual formation. How's all that working together? And the second mm-hmm. book, Shame, really was trying to explore the question of how is it that evil really is trying to undermine this whole project? And what mm-hmm. does evil try to do and how does evil, you know, what, what are the tools that evil uses to devour us? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I think that shame is at the root of everything that we call sin. I think it's the emotional it's the, it's the emotional color. Everything that we call sin, shame is involved. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the beautiful things about the gospel and the story of crucifixion and resurrection is this notion that when you, when you look at crucifixion, there is no more violent and humiliating way that human beings have ever treated human beings than to crucify them. Tom Holland in his book, uh, uh, his his recent uh, book Dominion on you know when this uh, beautiful book I would commend it to folks um, it's a tome it's several it's 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 a, it's a big book but he talks about crucifixion and how the Romans even them even though they used it they would never want to talk about it they would never want to like to admit to it because it was so horrible right. but it is this very thing God comes God comes to the worst place mm-hmm. that man can make up. And he says, that's where I'm going right. to fight you. The unspeakable in the place. Yeah. 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 Where shame is distilled to its essence. That's yeah. where I'm going to go live. Yeah. But I'm not, like, I'm not going to stop there. Yeah. Like the scripture in Philippians, beginning of a letter to the Philippians, where you know this description of Jesus humbling himself, becoming, like submitting you know, submission being like the apex yeah. of power, yeah. like he's submitting yeah. himself to death. And then it says even death on a cross. I think that's like yep. the NIV or something, but you yeah. get a sense that like, this is the embarrassment. Like this is the worst of the worst. And, and it's sort of lost on us culturally because we don't, I mean, for a number of reasons, we we're not connected directly to it. And we, you know, we would wear like a cross as a, a gold, like I right. have cross earrings on right now. Right. And it, right. and I was thinking about that the other day and I was thinking, well, you know, there's this sense that it's, I don't associate that, that that's not like a meaningful attachment to me. And yet my experience of the gospel is, is sincere, you know, right. Right. but there's some detachment that happens when we are removed from it, that when we get back to those places personally of our shame, it becomes, uh, like a place of wonder and like you're saying, yeah. like of humility and worship that yeah. it can only be when we, when that, the reality of history is injected into our personal yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think, um, uh, and, and this is of course, you know, what, what I love, you know, in those, in those two chapters of, of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe that are titled, deep magic and mm-hmm. then deeper magic <laughs> the, the deeper magic that the witch yeah. didn't see and the deeper magic that evil didn't see coming right evil never Gosh, dreamed of resurrection evil didn't right. see that coming and i think that this is this is the thing that you know if it weren't for easter uh, we wouldn't even know about yeah we, would, we wouldn't even know about crucifixion i mean it's so bad 
that, that we wouldn't even have written about it in our history books. It's that bad because the right. people who were writing about it wouldn't even want to contend to it. But, mm-hmm. but with Easter, um, we don't just see Good Friday as uh, an awful thing. We, we can actually mysteriously consider the phrase, there is nothing more beautiful mm. than a crucified Lord. Mm. Right. When seen back through the lens of Easter. I'm, it I'm, redirects the, I mean, it, it redirects even our definition, our understanding of beauty. We begin to have a reshaping right. of it. So I've just finished uh, the manuscript for this third, for a third book project. That, oh, wow. Um, and, and, and beauty is the central feature of it. Oh and, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that. I yeah. can't wait. And, yeah. And it's, it's intention really is to, uh, you know, invite us to consider that we are people of great longing. Mm. And we long to be known in order for us to make things. Mm. Like it is in our DNA to create, and we don't long to create mediocrity. We long to create things of great beauty, mm. whether it's relationships or music or sculpture or software mm. or whatever it is. Right. And evil really wants to disrupt all that. And in that trauma, we become mm-hmm. people of great grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I can say amen to that. I think that when there is something that's blocking the creativity, you know, when there's shame or there's, so you know, people would call it like self-doubt or even, even writer's block. People yeah. ask me sometimes about that as creatives. And, you know, I, I also want to stop to highlight you're, you are saying, right. You are giving us permission to say that all of us are creative, even if you don't think of yourself as a creative. Is that true? Oh, it is so true. It is <laughs> It is so true. And not only that, but the, re- the reason it's so important to say it is yeah. because we, like, even that we have categories, yeah. that there are creatives and there, well, and then there's me. <laughs> That's true. Right? It's like, I mean, in some respects, this is not unlike St. Paul's language when he talks about gifting, right? There are people who have mm-hmm. gifts of evangelism and gifts of this, gifts of that, and so forth and mm-hmm. so on. And meaning that there are people who have highlighted capacities for music and sculpture and painting and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. But we all are people who are evangelistic. Yeah. We all are people who are people who, who have moments of, of prophetic word, right? We all have mm-hmm. moments when we teach when we, when we have to do things with other people. And so you're absolutely right. And I think that the question is in what way, like one of the, one of the major questions that I'm asking in the book is what is the next new artifact of beauty that God wants to make with you. Hmm. And it's not just the thing, it's not just that beauty is a thing that we want, that we see and or that we want to make. It is a thing we are becoming. Yeah. Hmm. And we, and what shame wants to do, what evil wants to do is to shear off our capacity to create. Mm-hmm. And so part of, part of the book then uses the, 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 the back half of the book is using the fourth verse of the 27th Psalm as a way to explore what does it mean for us in vulnerable community to be people who, uh, by, by dwelling, by gazing, and by inquiring of the Lord, those three words that come out in that verse in the Psalm, how do we become outposts of goodness and beauty? And so echo Dostoevsky's phrase when in the idiot his character says beauty will save the world Mm -hmm. and I think about 
yeah. veteran Smailovic, the cellist of Sarajevo, who uh, I was, uh, you know, Sarah Groves introduced oh, yeah. that story back in years ago. That's in right. right. For 21 days, he plays his cello, you know, in a, in a bomb crater. And, uh, and I think that this is what we're doing. This is, I mean, this is what, this is what God yeah. did. Yeah, and this, her song, Sarah has this, Sarah Groves has a song called Why It Matters. Yeah. And it points back to that story of beauty in the midst of a war scene, playing the cello in the middle of uh, the ruins. And in that place, declaring the beauty, and like you were saying, Psalm 27. So Psalm 27, verse 4 is, I just had to look it up. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's so yeah. good. And it, I mean, it even goes on for he will hide me in the shelter yep. in the day yep, of trouble. On. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And that's exactly what you're talking about. I mean, that that is scaling like, like the ascent. Um, we experience the ascent because Jesus experienced the descent. So mm -hmm. as we compare like the crucifixion and the scene of war and the mm -hmm. scene of desolation, then we experience his consolation and his lifting. Mm -hmm. And the, like these two directions, I mean, the, one upward and one downward, this is the gospel in mm -hmm. a sense, um, in the most, you know, in these kind of primary colors. And mm -hmm. we see it mm -hmm. all over our work and our life. And, you know, as, as you were talking about um, your story, getting to this point of doing the work you're doing now, um, and you described that you had about 20 years of doubt and exploration of your faith. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people even, I mean, so this is a story a lot of us have experienced. And it does seem like almost as you look back, there's such clarity because you look back, it's like, yeah, you're doing this um the science and um, heart and theology work that's all interwoven. And at the same time, there was this period that you were being stretched and directed, which sounds like that was um, a struggle, right? Mm -hmm. For all those things mm -hmm. to align. Mm -hmm. What punctuated it? Was there a moment where you began to come out on the other side of that tunnel of doubt? Um, and was there something that precipitated that or did it, was it gradual? Um, and do you still experience doubt? What does that look like in, you know, in your work now? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a, that's a, that's just really a lovely question. You know, I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm reminded of, I, I, I don't know who the person was that originally said this, but said something to the effect of, you know, at the moment that a decision is made, all that goes into that decision, all, all the, all, everything that's coming, you know, has already been it's already been done. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like the moment, the moment that the balloon pops, um, it pops because, you know, you, you've kind of crossed a threshold, but that's been building, right? And do you put too much air in the balloon? The moment that a decision, you know, uh, the, the moment that I have some degree of clarity, yeah. that clarity happens, I think, in fact, <laughs> because of the doubt, that that has mm. preceded it, and, and the one thing I would say, uh, Sandra, that that is consistent throughout all this, is uh, the relationships of the people that have come to find me. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, you know, I uh, it was about uh, about twenty eight years ago now. Twenty eight years ago, I began to work with a spiritual director, and it was about that time that I began to meet every Tuesday morning with a group of men. 
two other two other guys uh, mm-hmm. who we've essentially met every Tuesday morning for the last almost you know thirty years, uh, in which we're telling the truth about our lives, including all the doubts and all the all yeah. all the everything. Yeah. And I think that you know what I'm coming to find. I mean, you know, doubt for me, what was so painful. You know, I call it doubt, but it was really about shame. It was really about this sense that, like, I might not know. I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong at the end of the day, I'm going to be humiliated because I'm going to get to the end of the line and find out, like, well, I, I was just stupid for believing this. Mm-hmm. And not wow. really recognizing that shame is really, like I said, like, I like I really think it's it's at the root of everything. Yeah. And and so the thing that we learn about shame is that and and, and I've had I've had periods I mean, even in the last five years, I, I had, a, had had some time about, you know, four or five years, four years ago or so, where I went for a period of several months where, you know, just because of a number of different things going on, yeah. I, you know, I, I felt like, you know, if I didn't, if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, right, that'd be okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I didn't want to be dead. Right. I, I didn't, you know, this is, I'm not, I, I wasn't, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was more a matter of like, God, I, I just want, I want relief from this mm-hmm. internal torment. Yeah. I think the Psalms talk about that, like being in the pit. I think of it yeah. sometimes as being yeah. in the pit. Like yeah. you can't see, yeah. like, you know, the sky is up there and you're just stuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And I spent, I like, I spent six months in the mm-hmm. 116th Psalm mm-hmm. because of its, its opening verses about anguish mm-hmm. and affliction. And just mm-hmm. sitting with this over and over and over again. But I will mm-hmm. tell you, in the middle of all this, the thing that was constant were the people who would not leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, I'm getting back to your question, was there a moment or was it a gradual thing? I think that there have been both. I think there have been gradual elements of this, you know, moments when I kind of gradually, where the, where the lens kind of gradually comes into focus Mm-hmm. And then there are moments when you go from feeling like you're in a dark vault and somebody just pops the door open. Mm-hmm. And, right. You know, and it's sudden. Yeah. So there, I think both of those kinds of moments and what I'm learning, you know, I, I tell people, look, we, we see our life coming at us through the windshield, mm-hmm. but we understand our life through the rear view mirror. <laughs> right. And I think when I look at the rear view mirror, there's, I, I would always say, oh, as it turns out, this particular place where I have really been in pain is a really a function of this part of my life where I had unfinished business with God, where there were mm-hmm. still elements where I was still ashamed, where shame was still lurking. I, I'm, the, I'm the youngest of four siblings, and I've lost three brothers to cancer. All three are these these oh, old wow. brothers of mine. And I remember that when my oldest of these three brothers died a couple of years ago, you know, suddenly, like, I'm the only living person in my family. And, you know, there are things that you, you may know this, there are things that you can't say until certain people in the world are no longer mm-hmm. living. And once those people are no longer living, you find yourself saying things and other people say things to you. And in the course, in the wake of all this, mm-hmm. I had conversations with people who'd known my brothers and my family and so forth. And, 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 and things started to emerge for me, discovering, and I, and I started to have, you know, gain access to some things that I had been carrying for 56 years, wow. not all of which were very pleasant. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, access being pretty angry, access to a number of different things. Mm. And you're like, wow, I've been walking around managing all this. Mm-hmm. And you come to find out some of my doubt that I thought was all about faith, as it turns out, had a lot more to do with my parents than it had to do about God. <laughs> yeah. And that, and when you're a child, like that is your manifestation of yeah. authority and of God and of kind of everything for a while. Yeah. You know, that's your yeah. point of reference, Yeah, which makes yeah. so much sense. We'll be right back for more of the conversation with Dr. Thompson in a moment. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So do you, so do you think uh, just this morning, I was thinking about this in, in the context of this question around shame, is it something we learn? Like do, if you have a parent or a sibling or like someone who's a strong influence in your life, do we learn shame behavior or shame thinking or, and inversely, can we, can we learn um, to, can it be healed or undone by um, other people in yeah. positive or negative ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think most certainly we do learn it and we learn it most powerfully, not in the way that we learn multiplication tables or mm-hmm. our alphabet. We learn it implicitly. We learn it through nonverbal <laughs> cues. We, you know, it, it, we, we start to, we, 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 you know, we start to take it in as early as 15 to 18 months of age, right? Long mm-hmm. before we have language. And so we're kind of, ingesting this without even being without necessarily even being aware that that's what we're doing and so in order to cope with it already as young children we are developing strategies for coping with it that we are not aware that we're developing we're just it's just it's all pretty automatic and it's not until we get to a certain place where you know we've burned enough energy to cope with it, that our brain is now really at a point where it's saying, like, I'm not doing this anymore. And we start to have some kind of either relational symptoms or okay. physical symptoms or depression or anxiety or whatever this is, okay. at which point we say, I got to like do something. I got to figure out what's and going on. starts to motivate a change. Right. By the and, comfort or whatever that is that you keep yeah, bumping whatever, up against. Yeah. Whatever my addiction happens to be. And I got, you know, I got plenty. And we all do. I mean, there yeah. are ways. Yeah. And there, and I think that's what's that's what's so wild about the stories in your books too is that you you have these stories and and this is what I I think I can relate to so much is like you know big parts of your life um, will look like this green grass and it's just flourishing and then there are these pockets where they're hidden or you just try mm. to mm. Um, you know and I and I have so many friends where we talk about not being able to sleep well or, and this has been a crazy year where there's job loss, there's insecurity, there's political strife, there's, you know, the relational implications of the political strife and this pandemic, which has changed. I mean, you know, talk about somebody kicking the door open. It changed Mm -hmm. most of our experiences like 
pretty rapidly. You know, you go from mm-hmm. all your normal social rhythms to, I mean, at the very best case scenario, you're just talking about social distancing. And the and the worst is is actually firsthand or, you know, loss that is of great proportion, you know, yeah. in our yeah. society. So it's like, okay, so in this year, in this time, what's the way back? What are the practices? So if people, if, you know, you, you've referenced that a couple of times, if the connection to other people is so important in, in rescuing and pulling back, you know, out of the pit, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what does that look like in a time of social isolation? Mm. You know, I, um, it, it's, it's a, again, it's another, another really poignant question. Um, I've, uh, I've mentioned to folks on a number of occasions that I, I see the pandemic not just as uh, something that causes our anxiety. It's not just a mm-hmm. force that's causing things. It's also a revealing force, right? Right. It, it has pulled the curtain back on our fragility as human beings. It didn't create it. It actually just shows what was yeah. there. Yeah. And it's not to say that it's not creating its own version of it, because I think it yeah. is. It, it yeah. is. There's no question about that. But in many respects, it is really just revealing the kind of people that we were when it showed up. <laughs> and and so in that regard, you know, I've, I've written a number of essays about it. And, you know, for our listeners who mm-hmm. well, in, these, in each of these essays that are on my website, you, I, there are you so know, yes. a number of different like just concrete things that we can do. And I would say that we were talking earlier about the, that, that fourth verse of the psalm, the 27th psalm. One of the things that I write about in the book is the, the first line in verse 4 is, One thing I have asked the Lord, one thing will I seek. <laughs> this sense that this is a writer who is who knows what it means to persevere, who knows what it means to enter into a long obedience in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Who knows that this is going to be a thing that I do day after day after day. This is this one thing. This mm-hmm. is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let other things distract me. And so part of our challenge, just to you know, say this, like we are an increasingly easily distractible people. We practice inattentiveness. We practice <laughs> being inattentive. Oh, right? that's good. I mean, so that's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. I mean, we're pulled in a thousand directions. Or if I'm if I'm coming from the car to the inside, just a couple of days ago, my friend's mom was with me. She's like, "You can't carry all that." And I was like, "Oh, if that is not a metaphor for my whole life right now, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I can't. I need to yeah. take two trips." <laughs> yes. Yes. So, I mean, and and this is the thing. I mean, you know, th- this gets into other things because uh, Amazon and Google depend upon your being increasingly inattentive. Sure. Uh, and I'm they not. I'm a, not. A, I have a little investment in that, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, and I'm not. I'm not a luddite. I'm. I, I'm, yeah. I'm. I think technology is a beautiful thing. And the the point being that we've practiced allowing ourselves to be distracted by multiple different things in the world, mm-hmm. and this means that we also distract ourselves from what we feel. Mm-hmm. I don't pay attention to my anguish. Yeah. Because I don't feel like I have the tools to deal with it because I'm not connected to people in the first place. And so the first thing that I would say is that as, as much as we possibly can, it is crucially important. Even, even if we are on zoom doing it, Mm 
Mm-hmm. Even if we are on the phone, I have some patients, for instance, that don't want to actually do Zoom calls with me. They would much rather talk to me on the phone because yeah, Zoom makes that. it harder for them to concentrate. But when they're on the phone, they're just like listening to one voice. Yes. And I really get that. Yeah. And so it, it but I would say it is crucially important for us mm-hmm. to be connecting to people on purpose. And for those of us who are able for, for us to find people, not just find mm-hmm. people for me to help me, but find people because I want you, I want you to be seen. I want you to be known. I want, I want to make sure that you know that I'm not going to leave the room on you mm-hmm. because it's not good for man to be alone. This phrase in Genesis 2 is fundamental to everything else that follows. It is the kind of geographical context, Mm -hmm. the georelational context in which shame is enabled to operate. Mm -hmm. Isolation. And so it's much bigger than just marriage, how that that verse is typically used, just male, you know, just this picture of marriage, but maybe it's more core and more central to how we're designed Exactly, because even marriage is something that points to Jesus and the church. It points yeah. to this notion that, you know, the, 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 the imagery of the New Testament is, and the movement of the Ark of Scripture is that the new heaven and new earth is going to be like, you know, everybody's going to be married to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which, in our, in our mind, feels so weird and strange. Like that. like, that's, that's odd. Right, I know. It, it is odd. <laughs> that's great. Like, when you edit this conversation, you can, like... <laughs> no, it's good. But this, this sense, and of course, like, that delight of being that connected, this is, what yes. the, this is how the Trinity lives. And of mm-hmm. course, it's like, if we aren't practicing for that kind of intimacy in such a way that we're not going to consume the other mm-hmm. right because in my in my envy and in my right. lust i i don't just i don't just want to be with the other i want to consume the other as a way to cope with my own shame mm-hmm. if i'm going to do this like god does this that means that what we're doing now is practicing for what's coming because what's coming if we're not practiced for it what's coming when it gets here it will crush us right hmm. And so this this notion then that my shame, like what do we need? I I don't need just one relationship. I need multiple relationships, several, three or four, six or eight relationships within which I am regularly connecting. Mm-hmm. Um, we, yeah. I tell people, look, this is if you if you're standing on your sidewalk and you find that you are being approached by an empty little red wagon at three miles an hour, mm-hmm. magically appearing, <laughs> uh, you could put your foot out and stop that red wagon from coming mm-hmm. at you at three miles an hour. But if you're standing on a railroad track and there is a locomotive that is coming at you at three miles an hour, mm-hmm. you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Shame in each of our own brains is like a locomotive it's got that kind of a payload. And so what it needs to countermand it, I can't stop that. What I need is another locomotive that's bigger than that. I need more than just what's in my own brain. I need a community of people. I need this 
this cloud of witnesses. I need a special community within which I am able to name my longings and name my griefs and live lamenting in the middle of this mm-hmm. on the way to then asking the question, what is the next thing that I want to create? Yeah. <laughs> and so when we, when we say, when I say to patients like, well, what, what, you know, what can I do in this pandemic? I'm isolated. I'm here. And I, one of the first questions that I ask them, which is kind of odd, you're not talking about, you know, I, Kurt's not saying, well, what about this antidepressant? No, I'm asking the question, uh, what kind of work, what kind of creative work are you doing these days? And of course they look at me like I have two heads. Right. What are you talking about? Right. It feels like that's the thing you should do when, when everything else is in order. And not the thing. <laughs> right. It's, it's like creativity beauty should be a luxury. Right. It, it is not. It is like it is like air and water to us. But yeah. we are so disconnected from the reality of it that we are waiting around until we get all of our house in order and then we can hang the painting. Yeah. And then we'll listen to our music. But first I gotta get all my work done and yeah. then I can listen to Sandra's album. Yeah. Like, 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 no, Sandra's album is the is like I you like what I would say to somebody. Like I would say, look, if you're so, what should I do? I would say, I want you to pick, uh, I want you to pick her most recent album. Mm-hmm. You get it up, she get it up. <laughs> and you. I want I want you to play, and I want you to play until the vinyl record can't be played anymore. I want you to play two songs mm-hmm. every morning. <laughs> And when you get through the album, I want you to start again. And I want you to do it until you've done it a dozen times. Mm. And I want you to sit with it. And I want you to feel it in your body. And I want it to allow your right hemisphere to imagine the God who is coming for you. Mm. But I can't help you do that by just telling you God is coming for you. It has to be embodied, doesn't it? Right. Nearly like Sandra, like your music can help people imagine this. Thank you. Because it is accessing, because it is accessing, literally, it is accessing parts of one's brain that words alone don't access. So when we have the Psalter, I mean, like, my goodness, you've got an entire chunk of the scriptures that were committed by the Hebrews to just, to, to artistic expression of emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is such, it's been such a comfort to me to go back to those places, those scriptures. One of the, when I think about this last year and some of the practices that have kind of kept me afloat, one that for me, that is like the first thing in the morning is writing out a passage of scripture and just seeing it in my own hand and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. living with it or sort of digesting it or just um, asking some questions about it and and it doesn't have to take long, but just that exercise of, of like a touch point, because I, I think if I start the day with checking, you know, whether it's social media or the bank accounts or just absorbing all the emotions that are floating around in my house with five people in it, you know, it's like, right, right. I'm so porous to that stuff that before I even have a cup of coffee in my hand, I've already, I'm already kind of like sinking a little bit with like just all the things, you know, right. but if right. I go to that place of beauty first and push toward it and yep. hear the, like hear the beauty in the scripture and encounter, um, or just have both gratitude and, um, meeting God in that and acknowledging that he, mm-hmm. 
has it under control. So I don't have to try to, Mm -hmm. you know, strong arm it, (laughs) you know, it's a completely different kind of a posture going into the day, you know? And I do, I think you're right. I think the priority of beauty and like going back to Psalm 27, but when you're feeling a lot of either the shame or the anxiety or all those other emotions, knowing that those Psalms are there to say you're not alone in it and that you can put words to it. Those have been a great comfort to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's important to remember that those Psalms, I mean, we, we, you know, this is 2020, you know, kind of post enlightenment, post hyper individual mm-hmm. in which we imagine that we read the Psalms, each of us as individuals, these were, these were written and intended to be read, heard, sung mm-hmm. in community, right? The congregation right. gathered together. It's like, so nobody, they didn't read these Psalms, you know, they didn't take these off of their own private devotionals, right? The Torah yeah. was big of a piece of apparatus to like take into your private place and read. And so it's important for us, I think, to remember that yeah. we, <laughs> we, encounter, we encounter these Psalms in community. So I would say, so another thing to do would be, I would say like, okay, uh, call up your mm-hmm. call up your one of your friends, uh, and the first thing you're going to do, one of you or two of your friends, th- th- you're going to listen to Sandra's album together. First thing in the morning, <laughs> that's what you're going to do. And we're going to and we're going to sell then we're going to sell three million copies. We're going to. I, and, <laughs> I think. So. And uh, no, I'm, I'm serious. Like that that th- to say that we're going to listen to this together, mm-hmm. and then we're going to pause, mm-hmm. and we're going to ask the question: Where are you? Mm-hmm. What are you feeling? Where are you? Where? What part of your life is this bringing? And and, and, and kind we, of a prompt. Yeah, yeah. And we can name this, and we can say yes. And I can imagine God in this in this music. The music enables me to imagine God coming to find me hmm. in this space where I don't believe I'm findable. Right. I know that. I know what that's like, man. It's, he's really good to keep doing that. And that's the thing that amazes me the most over time is like, even as we wrestle with the shame and the um, sinking into the pit, there is always the word of rescue is new. You know, every sunrise, every um, engagement from a friend, you know, mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This yeah. is, there's like the ellipses, you know, the story is not over yet. Oh, right on. Right on. So it's good news. Right. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for sharing your, um, just your, your heart and your, um, this clearly is not just, uh, some work that you put on into the world, but that is very much who you are. And that gift of presence is, um, really needed and i'm so grateful for it today and um for the like mm. just the like even this time being an artifact of that and mm, um, mm, <laughs> you know mm. like these touch points of saying like yeah mm. this is okay mm. this is true and i'm not alone mm. in my doubt mm. and i'm not mm. alone mm. in my anxieties and i'm not mm. alone and shame will not have the last word but that yep, there's right a joy on. that's proclaimed over me and over us and we get to do that for each other and community. And that's, I think that, that maybe is the, um, like the sort of the practice of the pandemic is like <laughs> just having more awareness that that is the way forward and the things that we want to leave behind that 
really we don't need to spend time on anymore you know i'm i'm struck by you know the uh the story of the hebrews exile and Mm -hmm. jeremiah and um uh the exile was i think in many many respects disruptive in the same way Mm -hmm. that this pandemic has been disruptive Mm And I think that we are, you know, there are different parts of me that react in the same way that different Hebrews reacted. There were those who were thinking like, oh, this will be a short thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll you know, it'll be, it'll, yeah. it'll be six, six weeks <laughs> out into the desert. And then Nebuchadnezzar will like come to his senses and we'll all go home. Uh-huh. You know, and then God through Jeremiah like says to like, no, this is, this is a long road mm-hmm. and I want you to dig in and I want right. you to love, I want you to love each other. I want you to like make your gardens, build your houses, have your kids. I want you to live life in this really hard place. I'm not leaving you alone. I've got things that I'm doing. And of course, you know, in some respects, this is like, how many times have we as when I was a toddler, when I was an adolescent, did I have my parents say to me, you know, there are some things going on in your life that this is, we're going to help you do some things differently because you do. Oh yeah, I guess I, I, you know, And, and, and my parent is saying, yes, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm with right. you. And I think, there, I think there are great things for us to learn from that story. And so, you know, one of the things that I invite people to consider is, you know, it, it's really crucially important for us to be immersed in the story of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. We have to be immersed in it. We have to be immersed in good literature. We have to be like, you have to stop listening to social media. I mean, I, I mean, right. this, this is my impulsive self, right? If, if I were in charge of the world. Yeah. You know, as one of my colleagues said once, like, what would be the first thing you do? And I said, like, I think I would get rid of all social media platforms. Now, this is going to sound heretical. I understand. <laughs> okay. But I mean, um, there are just some ways in which that only fosters our anxiety and our irritability because it, 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 it helps me practice inattentiveness. I, and I'll speak for myself, I, I need to be more solidly grounded in something that enables me and asks me to have me paying attention to something for a long period of time and to doing something right. like listening to your album over and over and over and over again. I mean, that's, that's a patience. That's a, yeah. Right. Right. And now I'm just kind of wandering off into the desert here, but I'm, <laughs> no, <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I think the, the text and the, and the story in Jeremiah, these stories we've kind of mentioned along, along the last few minutes as we've been talking, those are, ways we go back to and remember so like the story in jeremiah just the patience that's required both the lord's patience and our patience in the moment where we don't understand what's happening to us and the wilderness and the confusion of that you know time seems to in when you're in the wilderness there's you don't inherently you don't know and you can't always like name it Mm -hmm. and then sometimes it's a relief to just say hey i think you're kind of in a fog i think you're kind of in a in a wilderness liminal space or you're you're henry Nowen talks about like you're you've left one kingdom and you're not yet in the other one you're kind of in between Mm -hmm. and there's this there's this feeling of displacement that comes along with it and i think we i think you know what is required in that you're right like to deepen our roots which would be longer time spent in um in the stories and in the like the words of jeremiah and in the promises and you know holding to the things we know in in the middle of all the things that change and that don't look like what they used to look like Mm -hmm. and that you know i guess and i think you're right like this the mention of the parents 
the parent-child dynamic, I think about that even with younger kids in the house during this time, and that there's much more intensive parenting than there usually would be, mm-hmm. where right. they're, they're at home more, the sibling rivalry and the dynamics, the way we sort of take each other for granted, and we don't really appreciate people <laughs> we live with, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. right? All that's mm-hmm. way more intense because we're not out and then coming back. So that the opportunity to devour one another, like James yeah. would say, is yeah. pretty strong. And yeah. yet, and, and if we are able to reach out to a wider group of people and to be committed to those relationships, I think it can bring some oxygen back in and yep. gives, Absolutely. you know, let some air move through and circulate and just like not take ourselves so seriously when, when we feel kind of like we're wandering through the wilderness. Yeah. It's all, that's all really, I mean, in a sense, we're talking about big ideas, but it's pretty practical stuff when it comes down to the day to day and very much so one day at a time, you know, I don't think we ever get over that. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for spending this time today and I look forward to your new book. When does it come out? Any, do you, yeah, it's do probably going to be, yeah, it's probably, um, we're looking at probably the summer. I'm, I'm guessing like mid to late summer at the earliest of okay. 2021. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. So that. We can't wait. It's thank you for the work you're doing and look forward to reading that when it comes out. And it's been a, you, you bet. And it has just been an utter delight to be here. I just, I don't deserve my life, and this is now one more reason why. Likewise. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Steadfast is created by Sandra McCracken, our producer, Leslie Eiler-Thompson, and editor, John Fletcher, in partnership with Christianity Today. I'm Sandra McCracken. Thank you for listening.